What is the current state of activist groups seeking truth and justice for the victims of 9-11? How does 9-11 truth prevail now that it has been reduced to a conspiracy theory? Why was a woman trying to stop the September 11th attacks arrested under the Patriot Act? How much did CIA operatives working in the summer of 2001 know about the coming terrorist attack and why couldn't they use that information to save lives? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as we start a brand new season of the show, we will focus our attention on the 21st anniversary of the attack that propelled America into a perpetual war and also the reasons for questioning the understanding of what really happened that day and who is ultimately responsible. In our first half hour, we are joined by the architect and campaigner for 9-11 Truth, Richard Gage, AIA, about his efforts to raise awareness and about the changes to his work and others like him more than two decades after the historic attack. And in our second half hour, we meet guest Susan Lindauer, the CIA asset who claimed advanced knowledge of the attacks, who got arrested and put in jail as a consequence, and wrote a book to describe her experience. On this week's program, 9-11, 21 years later, a renowned architect and CIA whistleblower contradict the official story. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of September 8th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows have features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. FDA did not convene its advisory committee before issuing the authorizations, and it is not hard to guess why. Last year, its advisors voted against authorizing the ancestral boosters because the data they were given indicated the old vaccines were continuing to work well. Two top officials at FDA who disagreed with the 2021 booster rollout resigned, hinting that the decision to issue boosters had been imposed on the FDA. This year, FDA's Verb Pack, or Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee members, have been complaining about being given less and less data as they are asked to sign off on vaccine programs for younger and younger ages. VerbPAC member Dr. Paul Offit, a professor of pediatric infectious diseases at the University of Pennsylvania and co-inventor of a rotavirus vaccine, said last month that, quote, the fix was in, unquote, implying 
that the committee's deliberations were a sham because the White House announced it was purchasing the vaccine right after the meeting ended. That comes from the article, The High-Speed Bivalent COVID Boosters Are Here, by Dr. Merrill Nass, posted September 7th, originally published on merrillnass.substack.com. Most, if not all, this interest has been triggered by Sogavare's signing of a security pact with the People's Republic of China. This, the government in Onaria duly found out, is not approved by the Anglophone powers on either side of the Pacific. On its announcement, then-Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison called a potential Chinese naval base a quote-unquote red line while U.S. National Security Council official Kurt Campbell promised that Washington would, quote, respond accordingly, unquote. Being in what is termed the Australian backyard by those who so happened to be in Australia, Wong made an offer that would irk any sovereign state, including her own. We, old friends of empire, are happy to bankroll your election. That comes from the article, Dunderheaded Diplomacy, Australia's Funding Offer to the Solomon Islands, by Dr. Binoy Campmark, posted September 8th. Staghauer was leading the Dutch agriculture industry's climate policy that involved confiscating farms in a forced government buyout scheme. In the wake of the huge protests from farmers, Staghauer has now been forced to step down. He told the Dutch cabinet that pushback from farmers had meant he would not be able to meet a September deadline for rolling out the government's radical green policy, the AP reported. The climate agenda involves cutting nitrogen emissions from the nation's farming sector to the point where it made it impossible for farms to continue operating. The initiative includes a $24.2 billion scheme to buy out local farmers and facilitate the transition away from intensive farming practices. That comes from the article, Dutch Farmers Topple Agriculture Minister Leading Radical Climate Agenda by Frank Bergman, posted September 8th, originally published on Slay News. From the very outset, I questioned the official story, which described 19 Al-Qaeda-sponsored hijackers involved in a highly sophisticated and organized operation. Something was not quite right. Al-Qaeda was a creation of the CIA. Osama bin Laden had been recruited by the CIA, yet Barely a few hours after the attacks, CIA director George Tenet was pointing his finger at Al-Qaeda. My first objective was to reveal the true nature of this elusive enemy of America who was, quote, threatening the homeland, unquote. That was from the author's introduction of the September 12, 2001 article, Who is Osama Bin Laden?, by Michelle Chosodovsky, posted September 7th, 2022. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The day this episode first airs is September 9th. It was on that calendar date in 2001 that the website, Global Research, got its humble launch. It would soon gain a lot of attention and the interest of a variety of writers and academic figures. Founder Michelle Chosodovsky presents it as a steadfast outlet with outstanding analysis and resolutions against war and injustice. He is proud of GR's achievements and, in spite of multiple attempts to marginalize his work, he still commands one of the largest grassroots audiences in the world for an independent site and in multiple countries. One of his most famous projects was his many analyses of the September 11th attacks conducted only 48 hours after the site was established and written both by him and by other authors. So the Global Research News Hour intends to keep updating listeners on the opposition to the official story of 9-11, most particularly that the attacks were a false flag or inside job intended to mobilize millions of distraught and angered people into supporting the war on terrorism. We'll start with, uh, we will start our anniversary journey with the company of a fairly popular activist back for another visit. His name is Richard Gage, and I interviewed him a couple of days ago. I have with me Richard Gage, AIA. He is a 30-year-old San Francisco Bay Area architect and member of the American Institute of Architects. He's the founder and former CEO of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. He now leads the charge for a new WTC investigation at richardgage911.org. Mr. Gage became interested in researching the destruction of the WTC I-Rises after hearing the startling conclusions of a reluctant 9-11 researcher, David Ray Griffin, on the radio in 2006, which launched his own unyielding quest for the truth about 9-11. The organization he founded, AE911 Truth, now numbers more than 3,500 architects and engineers demanding a new investigation into the destruction of all three World Trade Center high-rise buildings on 9-11. He's also been a frequent guest on the Global Research News Hour. Richard, it's a privilege, privilege to have you back on the Global Research News Hour. Welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's my privilege, really. Thank you. Now, if you don't mind, would you like to explain, first of all, uh, what were your, your reasons for, for no longer being associated with AE 911 Truth? Well, um, they weren't my reasons. They were the PR consultants' uh, reasons, uh, actually, over at AE 911 Truth. Here's what happened in a nutshell. Uh, Spike Lee, the famous director, became aware of the 9-11 evidence, and he, he saw our documentary. He says, you got to come here. He flew me to Brooklyn, and uh, I spent two hours with him presenting the evidence. It was awesome. He says uh, that he was in tears. Uh, he, he, he says, I'm going to get this out on September 11th on HBO in my uh, miniseries called uh, 9-11 or New York Epicenters. So uh, we were all excited about that. And then uh, we have uh, a lot of pressure from the industry, uh, uh, movie industry, I guess, or HBO or something on Spike Lee. We also had 
uh, Slate magazine putting in his face a quote that I made uh, in an obscure radio interview about COVID, where I was concerned that uh, the disease going around was yet another false flag uh, operation and, and, uh, and a scam, essentially, <clears throat> and the danger of the vaccines <clears throat> that were forthcoming. So I uh, was uh, uh, sh- shocked, I think, to, we're all, we all were, to hear that he pulled uh, this half-hour segment due to, I think, primarily uh, the pressure from the media and perhaps also, uh, to some extent, uh, due to my own uh, comments on COVID, which uh, contradicted his own worldview regarding COVID and the vaccines. So uh, it's some mix of that. Later, he acknowledged that he didn't have a choice uh, in pulling that 30-minute segment. Um, and uh, that was uh, somewhat reassuring uh, to me. But in the meantime, uh, the PR consultant for Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth had told uh, the board that this was a crisis and that the CEO had to go because this could plague you for years to come. So, which is ridiculous, but uh, it took uh, more than half of our board um, uh, uh, to uh, to vote against uh, keeping me. So it was quite a vigorous Debate, to put it mildly. Yeah, very, very devastating, I, I'm sure. And of course, it centers the whole idea. I mean, if you thought that 9-11 truth was a difficult one, I mean, even just bringing up the whole, any doubts, I don't even know if you were all that certain about it, but uh, you doubts about COVID, that, that, that's, that's a no-go, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I can sort of relate. But, um, you know, you've been working continuously, uh, breaking down the science of the collapses and evidence of explosions, evidence of high temperatures or only generated by explosives and, and so on. Uh, you explained it. Uh, Leroy Halsey of the uh, Alaxa Fairbanks University explained it uh, here on, on the show uh, in detail of his expo- inspective study of WTC7. I was just wondering, could you bring us up more up to date as to whether there are new studies or, or contributions that, that strengthen your case? Well, uh, the Halsey study completely pulled the rug out from underneath the NIST report. And uh, this is a, a, a four, for those who don't know about it, a four-year, uh, $300,000 uh, major university study uh, uh, so, uh, Professor Halsey determined that uh, fire uh, was not the cause of the collapse of this building, that the, the building uh, had to have all the columns removed within a second of each other in, in order for the, the, this collapse to occur, which was an, an incredible uh, support for the uh, work that we have done over the last 15 years. Uh, and assembling 3,500 architects and engineers uh, demanding a new investigation of the destruction of all three World Trade Center skyscrapers. Uh, we have put that study out uh, into the academic environment with thousands and thousands of postcards alerting the engineering community to uh, the study. We don't have any uh, major support uh, that arises anywhere near the level of credibility that uh, the Halsey study has has put forth. Um, uh, and we don't have support yet from 
Congress. So uh, where we are getting some action is in the courts. Yes. And we're delighted to, in fact, have uh, Mick Harrison, the litigation director of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, representing us in getting uh, our evidence, uh, the 60 exhibits that have already been submitted to the U.S. attorney uh, to be given to the special grand jury. Uh, we have uh, sued uh, to make sure that, that happens. Um, and we are appealing the faulty decision on the part of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, and we're, we're going to be uh, discussing taking that uh, all the way to the top. So uh, that's incredible. We're making a film uh, to document for the grand jury specifically, and then for everybody else also, the, those 60 exhibits will be brought to life by myself and experts uh, with regard to the technical uh, evidence uh, and looking right into the camera, showing them all the evidence. And then also Mick Harrison uh, will be explaining to the grand jury what their opportunities are with regard to this evidence. What does evidence mean in, this, in these cases? What uh, are there, who can they subpoena? Who can they ask for material, persons of material interest? So we're filming that uh, now. And, and, and that's very exciting. We'll be discussing that uh, film and the opportunities and updates from the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry at our event, uh, which is on September 11th, uh, which is uh, uh, on our website, be shown live stream to everybody. Uh, it is nine, uh, excuse me, what? Just a live stream showing, right? Yeah, live stream. Uh, on richardgage911.org. Uh, so that will be there uh, the day before the September 11th event, the Lawyers Committee, of which I'm on the board, we're putting our own event together on September 10th uh, with all of the attorneys uh, speaking about different subjects. Uh, and that is lc4for911.org. Okay. Um, you know, I was wondering uh, how it's how you've been, you said you've been lobbying politicians like for years, and it's well known that one outspoken member of Congress, Cynthia McKinney, was a vocal supporter of yours and of 9-11 Truth generally, and, and you saw what happened to her. She lost her seat. Uh, we, we saw what happened to the investigation into 9-11. Even if you win the support of, of any politicians that might agree with you. I mean, is it realistic to think that anyone would stand up in full view of the mainstream media and spout what is now branded a conspiracy theory? We will need more public support in order for that to happen. And that public support is growing now that we're making the ties between the false flag of COVID and the vaccinations over the last two years. Uh, to 9-11. In fact, I've been, I've developed a presentation on the parallels between 9-11 and COVID, the amazing parallels. I didn't actually develop it. It was developed by Kevin Ryan masterfully. Uh, what I did is codified it and, and, and refined it. And that attracted the attention of Dr. Rashid Batar. So I, he wanted me to speak and I did in San Antonio at the Advanced Medicine Conference there to a thousand uh, attending 
uh, medical people. So that was an incredible opportunity. Then at the Red Pill Expo in Indianapolis, uh, Dr. Uh, excuse me, G. Edward Griffin asked me to speak there, and we did. So uh, it is getting out there. Now Dr. Madhavasetti, who works with the Children's Health Defense uh, Organization, is working with me to create a joint presentation. Uh, he'll be taking the COVID side. I'll be taking the 9-11 side. We're going back and forth and we'll have this uh, prepared through the Collective Evolution YouTube uh, 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 platform uh, of Joe uh, Martino. So uh, that's going to be, uh, so with all of these efforts and the legal case cases, including the FOIA case that we're winning uh, in, in court, there are some success stories, uh, to get the information that NIST and FEMA had in order to produce their final reports on building seven, uh, we're, that's now coming to us and that will yield all kinds of opportunities as well. So I think with all of this happening, it may not be this year, but uh, I think it's rapidly developing. This cross-pollination between these two truth movements is in particular going to be extremely effective in waking people up. Okay, well, you know, Richard Gage, um, you know, for almost 21 years, people have been speaking out against the official story of 9-11. On the one hand, I would say millions of people have already gotten the message about 9-11 being an inside job. Uh, however, from the standpoint of the professional class and the mainstream media, your position is an urban legend by now. It's a conspiracy theory. And, and you know that today, unlike in 2001, much of the public doesn't trust the mainstream media anymore, you know, generally, partially, I suspect, as a result of 9-11 of truth. But this, this is presented as the ability of alternative media to spread misinformation without getting their facts straight. You know what I mean? So this is how you get your beliefs dismissed. And, and I, I'm wondering, how do you cope or, or adapt to what I see, and maybe you see it too, as a different dynamic playing out in, in world news and analysis? My job is to continue educating the public, the academic professions, the media, and the government uh, as to the truth about what happened to these three World Trade Center skyscrapers. And now with the, as acting independent from 1811 Truth, uh, now with Richard Gage 911org uh, we're drawing these parallels and being much more effective and there's much more acceptance. So I cannot speak, I don't have the crystal ball as to when we're going to break through or when the conspiracy theory label is going to be an asset rather than a liability for the truth movement. Uh, so I don't have direct answers to your very excellent questions. I just know that we are making progress, that I've got more uh, at requests for interviews this season than I ever have before. So that is a sign in and of itself because, uh, as you know, I'm not with AE911 Truth anymore, and yet I have doubled the number of interviews I'm being asked to give, uh, well, such that, uh, just, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, well, just to, to, to secure the point a little, I mean, the point I'm making is that, like, unlike yesteryear, you know, uh, today you find people embracing lots of conspiracy theories, including a lot that aren't even true. You know, say chemtrails, from airplanes cause climate change. The earth is flat. Man faked a voyage to the moon or vaccines will kill you. Uh, uh, 20, what, 20 election was stolen from Trump. I mean, some people put it that those all in the same camp. And, and your analysis of 9-11, while it's 
know, impeccable. It's, it's, I guess you could say it's a, a, a needle in a haystack of conspiracy theories. So, I mean, I, I'm wondering, does this not pose a challenge to, to you as a 9-11 truther? Who, who is being called a conspiracy theorist yourself uh, to cope with these realities in the public square today? I don't think that's uh, a, a, a concern. I have certainly looked into many of these conspiracy theories, and I can tell you the world does not work the way we think it does. So I think anybody evaluating any conspiracy theory, as they call it, or alternative uh, truth-based uh, information, as others call it, um, has to be evaluate evaluate the evidence i encourage everybody and this is what i do myself uh before you jump on the bandwagon of labeling something a conspiracy theory so uh and that's what we try to encourage people whom we are educating about the 9-11 um, catastrophe uh also and the truth about it uh, I, I don't know what else I can tell you about that, Michael. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but, but before we close, maybe, maybe is there an event or on the, you mentioned the street, the uh, streaming of, of the film already, but I mean, is there any, anything else uh, happening on the anniversary of 9-11 that maybe you haven't mentioned to us yet, or, or maybe uh, a couple of details you'd like to throw in? Sure. You bet. Uh, the, in the Netherlands, Jan van Aken has a, 12-hour uh, presentation on September 11th, um, and and uh, I, I don't even know how to direct you to that website because I don't know it, but it's, it's going to be in Dutch, <laughs> if anybody <laughs> speaks Dutch. The architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth are having their own event on Friday, September 9th, and uh, that people can learn more about on their website. The Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry is having their event on Saturday, September 10, beginning, uh, I think, at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and that's uh, going to be uh, the Board of Lawyers with a very interactive and uh, very interactive environment where people will be encouraged to ask questions and to provide feedback to the lawyers who are deciding, you know, whether how to proceed with these various cases. They, they're looking for people's feedback. I'll be speaking as one of the panelists uh, on September 10th there, and I'll be discussing the evidence for the explosive demolition of the Twin Towers and the film that we're making that I mentioned, 9-11 Crime Scene to Courtroom. My event on September 11th is uh, brings uh, honor to David Ray Griffin, who's let the 9-11 Truth Movement know that uh, he only has a few months to live. So we're going to be spending time honoring his work and him, uh, and he'll be watching um, as, as we anticipate he will and at this point and uh, will, will Elizabeth Woodworth will be presenting her decades-long work with David uh, the including the uh, points of consensus in the 9-11 consensus panel which is 9-11 consensus.org uh, and so uh, that and also we'll be focusing on Osama bin Laden uh, who 
uh, we most of us don't know a whole lot about, even in the 9-11 Truth Movement. But James Corbett of the Corbett Report, who will be joining us live also in this event, will be introducing his third uh, in a series of three uh, film documentary called False Flags, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda, uh, which exposes uh, the lies surrounding Osama bin Laden and uh, some of the truth that we're still unaware of. So that's pretty uh, amazing opportunity as well. So that'll happen September 11th, 10 a.m. Pacific live stream. That's going to be about seven hours in and of itself. Yeah, well, amazing stuff. And then just to, to point out that uh, David Ray Griffin is such a a, less, a a legend. So to have this while he's still alive, it's, it's certainly that alone to be a, a much, a much you know, desired uh, to, to, to go out there and participate while we still can. Um, yeah. Great stuff. It's been a real pleasure uh, speaking to you again, Richard Gage. Best of luck uh, with your upcoming awareness raising and take care. Thanks. Thanks so much, Michael. You, you take care too. And we'll see you on the 11th at the events. Richard Gage, AIA, is the founder and former CEO of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. You can follow up on his recent efforts at an WTC investigation at the site, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-G-A-G-E-911.org. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. My next guest was Susan Lindauer, a former journalist, anti-war activist, and congressional staffer. She would become a CIA asset following the awareness she had about the WTC bombing of 1993. Her task involved developing friendly relationships and dialogue with several Iraqi and Libyan delegations at the UN at a time when U.S. staffers had lost all such contact with the two countries. Her work with the CIA made her aware of the impending threat of a terrorist attack on the United States, yet nothing was done to prevent it. In 2004, she found herself arrested and was in jail for a year before eventually being released. In 2010, she wrote a book, Extreme Prejudice, the terrifying story of the Patriot Act and the cover-ups of 9-11 and Iraq. I got hold of her earlier this week. During our conversation, I first got her to comment on what exactly a CIA asset does compared to a CIA agent. Or operative. One is a domestic citizen, and then one is a the, an agent is a foreigner. So uh, if you, if you're if you're working as a as an asset, that means that you're working for your own government. And in fact, every contact I had with the Iraqi ambassador, I negotiated the return of the weapons inspectors to Iraq, and I also negotiated the the Lockerbie trial and the handover of the two Libyans with Libya's ambassador. So I had very high level contacts at the United Nations Security Council. And, and my, as it happened, my cousin, Andrew Card, was the chief of staff to President George Bush. So all of my briefings on Iraq were going straight to him at his home. I was delivering the papers, not to the White House through the White House mail, but to his house. And therefore, 
Uh, it was very, and I also delivered uh, Colin Powell, Secretary of State Colin Powell was the next door neighbor of my CIA handler. And I was also delivering the same papers to his house. So all of these, there was, there was, that was proof of high level knowledge of the real events of Iraqi pre-war intelligence and the 9-11 warnings and, the, and Iraq's response to 9-11, which uh, the government desperately wanted to hide when George Bush was facing threats of impeachment. Uh, but it, may, it proved that there was a conspiracy of silence. And uh, what I suffered in the aftermath was, was shocking and devastating to most people. It was, it was one of the scariest things you've ever seen. Uh, 30 days after I requested to testify about before Congress about the real events, the real pre-event, pre-war events, I was, I woke to hear the FBI pounding on my door with an arrest warrant. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing at my house? You must have the wrong address. And they said, Susan Lindauer, you are arrested on the Patriot Act. And that's what the Patriot Act. I was subject to secret charges, secret evidence. The government was allowed to tell my attorney that he would not be allowed to communicate any of their conversations between the prosecutor and my attorney. They were not allowed, that my attorney had to sign documents like non-disclosure agreements that he would not tell me anything. And uh, for Julie, that those people watching the Julian Assange case should be aware that, the, that once you're arrested on a Patriot Act case, it is, it is a frightening event because uh, the, 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 the defense attorney is literally threatened with disbarment or sanctions or prison time if the attorney discloses what, they, what the conversations are. So I was never allowed to receive in, intelligence from my own attorney as to what the charges were against me. Uh, I knew that the public declarations were entirely bogus. Uh, I was subjected to forgeries. The, there were the forgeries by Iraqi exiles were notorious for fabricating lies about Iraq. And they had submitted just a couple of receipts in the amounts of $100 mm -hmm. and $150. And that was it. That was the only evidence that they had. The, the important thing about the Iraqi exile forgeries were that the, they, they were, the devil, they, their penmanship is super, superb, but the devil was in the details. So in my case, I was very lucky. They got the name of the diplomat wrong and the diplomat left the country in March. So he was 7,000 miles away in December when he could not possibly have given me $100. And that was all they had. They had nothing else. Um, he also, the same diplomat also had a girlfriend named Susan. And there were some days, like clusters of days, when uh, he would have lunch with her. At, at, you know, they, these were very cheap lunches, like uh, three lunches, totaled $92 and 92 cents mm. with a bottle of perfume valued at $65. Mm. 
And that was also evidence against me. And I was able to prove that I was not in New York on any of those days because I was fortunately working at a, a business that had a, you, you stamped a clock when you went into work. And I thought it was so silly. I, it was like, you know, the, why, who does this? Why? But it ended up being like saving my life because I could prove that I was, I had to check out. I had to stamp in in the morning and check out at lunchtime and check in after lunch and then check out, check out when I went home at, at night. And I was able to prove that on, at, on those dates, the, when the diplomat was having lunch with his girlfriend named Susan, I was actually in Washington, D.C. at work. <laughs> I was like, thank God. Oh, Lord, I thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> this weird system that they had saved my life. Yeah, well, yeah. you were very much involved with the, the, the Iraqis and the Libyans, like, like as a part of your, your job, you were seeking, I guess, information, uh, you know, but basically there, there was already, even before 9-11, there was a lot of antagonism against Iraq. Oh, and, yes. and so, and, and, and Libya, I guess I should mention that you were uh, involved in the locker or the, uh, the, uh, the, the first attack on the World Trade Center in 1993. Not, I mean, you were- you I, I, gave I gave advance warning about the 93 World Trade Center attack to the Tunisian embassy. And I worked in anti-terrorism at a real, at a real deep level, I met Osama bin Laden in Paris. He was part of a of a network uh, bombing subway stations and train stations in Paris, and I met him during that period. Yeah. So I knew him, and I or I had met him. I had met him. I had personal conversations with him, mm -hmm. um, and I just have. It's like my destiny of life was was to was to work in anti terrorism and. The Iraqis and the Libyans were both, uh, we had like a dedicated channel to the CIA and the Pentagon. And this, and believe me, you would never be allowed to interact with Iraq or Libya during the, during the 1990s while uh, without making these kind of contacts. And if you were to try, if anyone else had been doing what I did, they would have been arrested immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so don't do what I did unless you had the CIA or the Pentagon backing you up because otherwise it would be impossible. Yeah. But, but what, what ended up happening was uh, the, the, there was an Iraqi exile who was an FBI agent who came after me on the Patriot Act. And he was very disturbed. Now, this is after 9-11. And he was very, as you can imagine, let's put yourself in his shoes the Arabs and the Islamic people were being heavily attacked. They demanded the proof of your patriotism to the United States. And it was, it was messing up their minds. And so I could see that this guy was having, was, was very angry and, dis and disturbed, but he was coming into my house doing warrantless searches, which are allowed on the Patriot Act. And I would come home from work and I would find my papers all over my desk that I did not put there. You know, I'd find papers that had been like, you'd have to go deep into my files to even find them. I had a filing cabinet and, and he would take the papers out and they'd be on my desk. And then he'd call me and say, well, I need those papers. Excuse me, you, need, you, you didn't, you said, why well, I, I, I need them. You have to give them to me. I was like, look, you cannot come into my house when I'm at work. This cannot happen. You cannot do this. You can do anything. So you can imagine, 
but but this is how bad the prosecution's case was that if if so then they decided that you know it turns out i was the good guy i opposed the iraq war i negotiated the return of the weapons inspectors to iraq okay it was part of a comprehensive peace framework it included um Six months before the 9-11 attack, Iraq invited the FBI to send a terrorism task force into Baghdad with authorization to run terrorism to investigate what we were already calling the 9-11 attack. We'll come back to that in a minute. The Iraqis offered the United States oil contract, all the oil that they could possibly want, oil contracts, uh, transportation, they offered to buy 1 million American manufactured automobiles every year for 10 years. They offered to give the United States preferential contracts on technology like telecommunications and healthcare, hospital equipment and pharmaceuticals to rebuild Iraq's devastated healthcare system, which was just the, 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 the misery of the Iraq. UN sanctions. The sanctions against Iraq, I should say. It, uh, hideous, hideous sanctions, genocidal sanctions. One million children under the age of five died from sanctions. And that is just, that is, you know, Madeleine Albright said it was an acceptable loss and she was wrong. The whole thing was a lie. Uh, the Iraqis were willing to bring the weapons inspections back into power, back into place from the beginning of the George Bush administration, okay? So the Iraqis were willing to restart the weapons inspections with no conditions. As soon as the US government heard this and realized all of this intelligence is going to the chief of staff of the White House, George Bush's chief of staff named Andrew Card, who is my cousin. Mm -hmm. So if we're having congressional hearings into Iraqi pre-war intelligence, all of this stuff is going straight to George Bush. Yeah. Okay. There's no George Bush and Colin Powell. And now you have an entirely different scenario where George Bush could be impeached and Dick Cheney could also be impeached and they can no longer lie. They can no longer hide. So what this Iraqi exile did by, by violating my rights under the Patriot Act, he triggered a, a desperate uh, crisis, constitutional crisis for the Bush White House. And so they responded in kind, not because I broke the law, I categorically deny it, but they arrested me, threw me into prison so that I would be locked up and denied any speech at all. It would be impossible for me to get to any member of Congress to tell them what was going on. And then uh, when Congress finally did realize that I was the, being scapegoated and gaslighted, they were so scared, the Democrats and Republicans, this is both parties, were so, the voter fury, the outrage, the, the, the excoriations and recriminations were so severe that the, that the uh, members of Congress wanted to scapegoat me too. And they're like, she's not competent. So then I was declared not competent to stand trial. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and they said I was a religious maniac. I, now I do believe in God, everybody. Fact, that's true, I do. But 
I defy anybody to say that the woman speaking to you right now is a religious maniac. I did suffer post-traumatic stress after, after I got out of prison. So when I first brought my story out, I was like, Oh, Oh God, (laughs) because I had gone through this for five years. They refused to give me a trial. They refused to give me a hearing until 18 months after my release from prison, I went out and found a new attorney and he took my case pretty much pro bono. I paid him like $5,000 so I didn't have any money. And he took my case for nothing. And then he defended me passionately. And and his name was Brian Shaughnessy. And he had, he was part of the movement to overturn the mandatory sentencing guidelines that had succeeded before the United States Supreme Court. He himself was a former prosecutor in the court of Judge John Sirica. He was the chief prosecutor in John's, in Judge Sirica's court. So he was a top level kick-ass attorney who took my case. And he was not capable of forcing the government to give me a trial. He went into the court and he said, your honor, I have verified Susan Lindauer's story. I know these attorneys personally and professionally. She is telling the truth. She was a US intelligence asset and she can prove it. I know these witnesses personally, she can prove that. And also I, as an attorney, I am capable of representing her. And I am, and she is capable of working with me. And I have never heard of a case where any case where a, a, a prosecutor declared a defendant not competent to stand trial over the objections of the attorney, because it's 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 the question is whether the defendant is capable of contributing, of working with the attorney to to, to manage a defense. Like some people, if they're schizophrenic. God, you know, people who are schizophrenic or something like that are not capable of doing it. And so there is a way out for those people who are just not, you know, like I didn't murder that person, but I'm schizophrenic and I can't tell you how, what happened. (laughs) And, And that is a real case. That is a real situation, but you can hear from my voice that I am not schizophrenic and I'm not a religious maniac. And the whole thing uh, was just was a desperate effort by and I would never have had Libya and Iraq as nations overseen by the CIA and Pentagon Defense Intelligence Agency if I was not highly capable of interacting with these par- hostile pariah pariah nations. Maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, the, what what happened during that summer of two thousand one and uh, you know what they looked were looking for from you from the Iraqis about the attacks because you know all of you guys knew that there was a ma- major attack coming and uh, yes. so like well, maybe give us some some examples of what made you so sure that these nine eleven attacks were, were were coming and uh, yes and, indeed uh, in April in April of two thousand one. Before the 9-11 attack, I received a phone call from my CIA handler saying that he had an urgent request that I must visit him at his office immediately. And he had a message to take to the Iraqi embassy. Now, I was at that point a back channel. I was a re- an official back channel or, or, or a non-official back channel. But everybody knew that what I was doing, the CIA and Pentagon were debriefing me weekly and daily in case anything was going on in Iraq 
or Libya, I was receiving daily briefings, for, uh, daily, daily interactions with these people to make sure that they, they were always controlling everything that I did. And that was what I had to agree to submit to in order to participate in this was that I had to, I had to open myself up totally. And I had to, and it was, it was the foreign policy of George Bush, not Susan Lindauer. So I had to deliver the messages exactly as they were given. This is very important for you to remember. So uh, in April of 2001, I receive a summons to my CIA handler. He says, Susan, we want you to go tell the Iraqis that we are demanding they turn over any intelligence involving airplane hijackings and a strike on the World Trade Center. We want you to tell them that if they don't give it to us and, they, and, it, and it is found they possessed it later on, then we will bomb them back to the Stone Age. We'll bomb them harder than they've ever been bombed before. I said, okay, I'll go deliver the message. Iraq is always very cooperative on anti-terrorism. Saddam Hussein recognized that uh, anti-terrorism and he was very threatened by the Islamic fundamentalists. Muqtada Sadr's government today would have been an enemy of Saddam. And he was very afraid of these people. And so he was always trying to tamp down radical fundamentalism that would appeal to the poor, the poorest Iraqis. So he was very helpful on anti-terrorism, always. So I went to them and I told the embassy, I said, okay, uh, we have something we'd like you to check out for us. The diplomat said, okay, very congenial conversation. I'll send it to Baghdad, not a problem. I said, great, have a nice day. I went back to Washington. My CIA handler says, so Susan, what happened when you threatened the Iraqis? I said, well, you know, there's such great intelligence sources, it was not necessary to threaten them. I told them what you said. He promised to send the cable to Baghdad. He said, and my CIA handler jumped up off his desk. He said, you go back. I did not tell you to be nice to these people. I told you to tell those blankety, blankety, blankety's, and he used very strong language, called them Sanders. He did. He said, I told you to tell those SOBs, and I want you to go back and you deliver the message exactly as I told you. You tell them this threat originates from the top level of the government. I said, well, Richard, I don't need to threaten these people. You're an anti-capitalist. <laughs> he, said, he said, I do not want them to think this message comes from you or me or anyone mid-level at CIA. You tell them this comes from the top of the government, above the CIA director and above the secretary of state. And that was the specific message that they would be bombed harder than they'd ever been bombed before. And that's very difficult to tell, talk to somebody who's been bombed so badly as Iraq was bombed, to tell them that there would be a way to hit them even harder than they'd already been hit. But he said, I want you to go back and you tell them my message that now th this is only three people above the secretary of state and the CIA director. That is President George Bush, Vice President Dick Cheney, and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Only three people. And I went back and I said, you know what? I, I, I messed up, guys. I was supposed to deliver a much harsher message, and I've got to deliver it to you ac accurately. Uh, I, I messed up. I've been told 
I repeated the message. The diplomat said to me, and this is now May of 2001. The diplomat says, wow, uh, I will I will communicate that to Baghdad right away. And also, uh, I've received a, a, a response from Baghdad that it already they've already granted the FBI permission to send agents into Iraq. They've got to be law enforcement. But you can say we've already invite the government has already invited the FBI to send a, a terrorism ta- agents, a, a team to investigate terrorism in Iraq. And I am going, I am ready to expedite the visas of any FBI agent who comes to the embassy and wants permission to go to the country. I I will be on standby and I will tell the staff here that they should interrupt any meeting that I'm in. That I, they they should, if, if the FBI shows up here, they will call me, they will page me and I will jump in a taxi and I will return to, I will interrupt whatever I'm doing. I will come right back to the embassy and I will personally expedite the visas for the FBI to go into Baghdad. Because of course, no, we were already engaged in conversations on resuming the weapons inspections. And I said to Iraq, you know, we don't want anything to mess that up because we're in a, we're in a, in a, in a, in a good, we're in moving fast to get these weapons inspections back in. And the United Nations was already aware of this. Malaysia and Yemen were on the Security Council. And I had already informed those embass- those those people. So everybody knew the Iraqis were already working on this and that they were trying to get permission from the United States. Because it used to be, and I know you're in Canada, but it used to be that the United States set the tune. And we set the march pace. And everyone knew that it would the the permissions would have to come from the United States before the UN Security Council could even act on it. Now, those days are gone. That's over now. But it used to be that we had that kind of power. We don't anymore. And that is a loss for the United States, big time. But the Iraqis agreed to uh, have the weapons inspections. And um, they were trying not to mess up anything by having you know, a, a terrorist attack on the United States that would in any way go back to Baghdad would be devastating, would kill the whole thing. So I went back to Washington and I said, OK, uh, the, F- the, the diplomat said that he'll expedite the visas of the FBI and he'll get those in. He'll get those in. You said you said you tell the FBI to get up to New York and they'll they're in. Boom, it'll be done like that. They can be there by they can be there by Friday. They can jump on a plane the next day and fly into Baghdad. No problems. Mm. Now that is not what George Bush wanted to hear, apparently. Yeah. Because that message also went. Now I want to be clear. That message went to my CIA handler. It also went to Andrew Card, chief of staff, to George Bush, that the Iraqis were willing to have the FBI come into Baghdad. They were already willing to do it. Six months by May of 2001, months before the 9-11 attack. So Andrew Card was also informed of this prior to 9-11. Then you have all through, but nothing is done. They took no action. But throughout the spring and summer of 2001, uh, I was repeatedly, my CIA handler said, you better ask him again. I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Okay. I'll, you know, 
Every single time I'd go up to New York, I'd smile and I'd say, have you heard anything from Baghdad about the this attack? It involves airplane hijackings, some kind of bombing and some attack on the World Trade Center. We knew exactly the modus operandi. They were already talking about miniature nukes, miniature nuclear devices, either a dirty suitcase bomb or some mini nuke that would be used to bring down the towers. We expected mass casualties. Now, what saves me in the end is I had a civilian witness who, my best friend, and I was telling him about this, him and his family, about our advance warnings about 9-11. So even, and I was, because they went into New York continuously from Connecticut, and I warned them to stay out of the city. And he testified that when I was finally allowed to have two witnesses, one of them was a chief of staff for a member of Congress who said, absolutely, Susan Lindauer was an intelligence asset. I knew Susan and her handler. And the second witness was a professor at York University in Toronto. And he said, I spoke with Susan throughout the spring and summer of 2001. And she repeatedly told me about this terrorist attack involving airplane hijackings and a strike on the World Trade Center. They expected some kind of miniature nuclear device to be used. They expected mass casualties and radiation damage. Yeah. And they said radiation damage. And she's told my family to stay out of New York City. She said that in August, she told me the attack was imminent and uh, that the attack would occur the end of August or early September. And he said he testified in the Southern District of New York, 1000 feet from where the World Trade Center used to stand. So it was verified, even if the CIA were today, you know, you know, put the cross their fingers behind their back and say, oh, no, she didn't know this was verified by a civilian witness sworn under oath. And he is not a 9-11 truther. He is not a you know any kind of conspiracy buff. He's a computer science professor. He does physics algorithms for fun. He is very precise and methodical in his speech. And he said, I know that about this 9-11 warning because Susan Lindauer told me we discussed it repeatedly. And she said it would be, it would finish the cycle of the 1993 World Trade Center attack. And somehow they were going to try to tie it to Iraq. That was my conversation with Susan Lindauer, CIA asset and author of the 2010 book Extreme Prejudice, the terrifying story of the Patriot Act and the cover-ups of 9-11 in Iraq. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.